Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unhedged, and I'm the show's host, Frank Troyes. And as folks who know me might say, I have a face for radio, hence why we've been so successful with the podcast, despite over 20 years of doing network TV work for the business networks, both in the United States and here in Asia. Question may come up, why a podcast versus TV? You know, to be perfectly candid, we would engage in the most incredible discussions off camera and the most contentious discussions between panelists, guest hosts, off air than we would when the light was on and we were recording the show. That for me was the bellwether to say that our viewers and our listeners needed to hear that debate. They needed to hear those honest opinions, unfiltered, uncentered, with guests having at it in a good constructive debate. On Unhedged, we find ourselves with an incredibly diverse group of guests. Literally, they range from winemakers to theologians to environmentalists to politicians. Yet at the same time, we find everyone is actually talking about the same things. There tend to be the same undercurrent themes in each one of these discussions. So while on the surface, it may seem that we're talking about markets, we really aren't. We're actually talking about everything that you and I and our families and our kids and our grandkids are thinking about and going through each and every day. That said, based on the subject matter, at a minimum, the show will be on once a week, but in many cases, we're on two to three times a week. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. In addition, we have an incredibly active community with our partners at Slack with Unhedged, which is available 24-7. So if there's anything that we say on the show that for whatever reason you'd like to continue the discussion yourself, you can actually do that with the guest hosts and participants that we have on the show. So feel free to do that, and that's available 24-7, and you can find that on our website. So again, on behalf of everyone here putting together the show, we thank you for tuning in. And as always, if there's something that we say that doesn't necessarily agree with you, that's what we're here for. It's meant to be unhedged. And with that, welcome to this week's show. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to SohoCap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Choice, with Ian Chapman-Banks of Screen Technologies. And Ian, uh, thank you for the laugh on the last segment regarding the different demographic groups. It reminded me a lot of my uh, trying to talk to my parents about the, as we were saying, as we concluded, the interweb and, and its various challenges. Well, one of the, let's play with this for a little bit. And, and some of our listeners are... Um, CEOs, CTOs, CIOs of their respective organizations. Mm. So let's play with the model a little bit. Mm. Let's say I came to you and I had effectively infinite budget and and let's assume my background, good or bad, is, is in the investment industry. So I'm coming to you and I'm saying, Ian, I, I want to go to this market. And so I'm going to ask you two questions. One Assuming I have no information, so I'm now coming to yeah. you, and let's just use Singapore as an example. Yeah. Where in Singapore 
is the best, and again, recognizing there's privacy issues, but, but assuming no constraints, where would be the best place for you and I to focus our attention from a data perspective to, to, to say, okay, here's enough for us to kickstart the process? Where, where would you go? So if I came to you and said, I am XYZ Corporation, I want to expand in Singapore, where would we focus first? So now you're, you're talking from a, a manufacturing company like Mercedes or talking from a, like a hedge fund company like, uh, like the Bridgewater guys or the Point 72 guys? Yeah, let, let, let's really wear the, the full uh, Wall Street hat. So let's assume okay. I'm a hedge fund. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> where we tend to, so we tend to focus on markets that are very rich in data. So US, Europe, China, Japan, uh, very data-rich markets, very sizable markets where we can get very granular in our predictions. So if somebody came to us, uh, you know, and we, we have had the pleasure of working on Wall Street with, with many hedge funds, I can, I can give you a very interesting example. A very large hedge fund came to us in the summer of, let's say it was 2016, when two things were happening. If you remember the scandal over Wells Fargo, uh, Wells Fargo had just announced that there'd been uh, a serious amount of fraud going on by uh, basically inventing accounts for the sales guys to hit the numbers, and the, and the, and the stock took a crash. Uh, one of the hedge funds called us and said, uh, uh, the Wells Fargo has just taken a hit. Uh, can you tell us whether the stock is going to go up or it's going to go down, or can you tell us what's happening in the market? So we ran. Uh, intent to acquire and use Wells Fargo credit cards. And we ran it across the whole of the US, across 400 million people. And the intent going back over two years had actually increased in this quarter. So we went back to them and said, actually, the stock's crashed, but the people that are interacting with Wells Fargo are actually very happy. They're not even aware of this scandal or they don't care about this scandal. So in our opinion, the sales in the next quarter of Wells Fargo in terms of its acquisitions and its usage is actually going to go up. Uh, and of course, history tells us that it did go up. And then an, another hedge fund came to us around about the same time and said, there is an incredible amount of search activity around Macy's. We think this is a really good time to actually buy the stock. And we actually did some research and we looked at people that were actually, let's call it Googling or searching Macy's because they had a massive sale on. And what we realized is the demographics that were coming in to buy Macy's were a demographic that would, ever ne would never go back to Macy's. In other words, what Macy's were doing, and they were keeping this obviously not transparent to anybody else, is they were actually doing a going out of business sale. In other words, they were selling everything at such prices that they attracted a demographic that had never been into Macy's and would never come back. So we said to the hedge fund, maybe we do not think this is a viable promotion over long term. We actually think this is a going out of sale promotion. And I don't know what the hedge fund did because they kind of took, took, took our check and kind of left and said, thank you very much. But then at Christmas, Macy's announced they were going to close down 60 stores. So we were able to look at the actions of the Macy's as a company in actually how it was merchandising its stock to actually say that, wow, something's happening here. That's amazing because it, it, in a way, your ability to grab those discrete data points versus what the companies have to disclose to the public, I, I think is, a, is an interesting dichotomy in, in terms of, uh, it, just, it just shows that the, even though information is publicly available and, and in a regulated fashion, that may not be the best place to look for the answer that you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way. There's 5.2 billion searches every day around the world. 
there's no shortage of information and everybody goes into Google Trends and look at, wow, everyone's Googling Macy's, the, 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 the trends for Macy's has gone up. Search does not equate to behavioral intent. So you need a very sophisticated machine to actually start decoding those overlaps. The other thing we did for a very famous sovereign wealth fund in, 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 in Asia was that we were able to predict Brexit was going to happen three months ahead of the, uh, the actual referendum in, I think it was June, June 2016. We were able to predict in April with a 95% probability that was going, it was going to happen. And the reason being is that even though when we looked at it, we could see that the voting population was just about, actually in, in behavioral intent is about 50-50. Uh, you couldn't call it, but what we saw is that the people that wanted to vote Brexit were so, let's call it angry, right, uh, animated, uh, that they were going to go out and vote, whereas the, let's call it the Remainers were not angry, and we suppose that in our, in our calculations, we could see that maybe 4 or 5% of those Remainers would not vote. So what we said to the hedge fund is that in April, we are 95% convert, uh, convinced that Brexit will happen. Because the biggest things that were, that were converting Brexiteers to vote for Brexit was immigration and terrorism. And we said the score is weighted so much that there's nothing can pull Remainer back. But if there's another terrorist incident, of course, Brussels happened, then that vote will swing even further toward, towards Brexit. And of course, for this hedge fund, they had very large exposure to banking stocks and to the euro and to the pound. So if you can hedge four months out, you're going to save you know, a tremendous amount of money as opposed to hedging the day before. So I think in that case, we were, we, and it took a lot. I mean, we had to run the engine every day for six months from the previous uh, November 2015 to April 2016 daily, 24 by 7, to actually pick these signals up. But it was very interesting for us to actually predict an event that never happened before uh, because we didn't know if it could be done. So that's the first time we realized that actually you can predict market events. Let, let, let's go to the other side of the industry. So the, the if, if Rather than wearing a hedge fund hat, let me wear a more traditional, long-only uh, fund hat, for, for lack of a better description. Yeah. And the the and, and again, I know we're on the same page here, so forgive me for kind of somewhat baiting you, but but for our listeners, Ian and I are very much on the same page with this. the The industry historically would would spend a lot of time thinking that they knew what the end investor wanted. So they would do a lot of research and they would say, we, we think that the, I'll make something up. The cereal box fund is, is what's going to resonate with yeah. the end customer. Yeah. And time, time to market was incredibly long to do that. It could be six, nine, 12 months before the product would be a fund and it would be registered and it would be out there. The converse of that is that there's a, a huge debate now in the industry where the, the consumers being or the, the investors being enabled with a lot of tools where they could get into trouble. So for example, there, w without naming some of them, uh, there are free trading platforms where the end consumer can trade without paying any commissions. So they, they're, they're basically being given a loaded gun. Talk me through, and again, to our listeners, Ian and I have talked about this at length, so I'm, I'm teeing up a softball for him here. But why don't we talk talk our listeners through if if I was a large fund complex mm. and I'm now realizing that wait a minute at the end of the day the costs of implementation are effectively zero and yeah. I really want to create bespoke solutions for our investors how how would you be able to help me mm. the fund house think about yeah. you know what what that looks like 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, actually, this this could work in any market, even a market as small as Singapore. And we've been thinking about this for a while, and it's taken us a while to get to this point. But essentially, what we're thinking of doing and what we probably will do over the next couple of months is we'll start to produce what we're calling behavioral intent metrics. And this is behavioral intent at a country level, at a product level, at an industry level, where we're looking for people who are intending to do something. So I'm intending, as we went before, I'm intending to buy Mercedes. I'm intending to, I mean, I, as a consumer, will intend to to buy this cereal box. Therefore, we know that investing in a cereal box is going to be a really good thing because there's a very, very high behavioral intent. You know, we know that, for example, for in China, we knew that the Nintendo Switch in China was not going to be very successful because the behavioral intent was actually to go online gaming. So if you were to if you were to have a fund, you know, you'd invest in the uh, in the gaming stocks, you would invest in Nintendo, right? Nintendo stock went up in Japan for another reason, but you can actually start looking at this fund and saying, what am I investing in? I mean, for example, uh, condos, right? The behavioral intent to buy a condo. Is this condo going to sell? I'm about to build, you know, I'm about to put a REIT together in, in Batam for 6,000 condos. Will this sell in Singapore? The answer is yes. If you uh, if you aim at taxi drivers and you keep it under 250,000, you will sell 6,000 condos in Batam tomorrow. So let me ask you, let's play with that a little bit further. And again, you know, with the disclaimer that this is something that you and I have talked about a lot, the, the in concept, and, and I like the way that you framed it in terms of intent. And if I wear my hedge fund hat, that, that to me is momentum. So the ability for you to discern uh, rather than trend following where we're waiting for the trend to manifest itself, where we're seeing enough initially to say um, the momentum is there and the trade, the trend's going to manifest itself afterwards. In theory, then, you would be in a position, if, if I was looking at this as a fun complex, mm. where I could say, all right, I'm following financial services, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm following commodities, I'm following uh, consumer staples. And you would be able to say, look, within each one of those verticals, I being, or let's use Scream. Scream is in a position to tell you what intent is occurring within that vertical. So yeah. uh, if, if we happen to be looking at automobiles, your ability to say Toyota versus Mercedes yeah. versus uh, Renault. Absolutely. Is that a fair? No, one? absolutely. I mean, you know, the people that drive Peugeot are the most depressed people in Singapore, as an example. They're not going to buy the Peugeot again. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. We can look at, even when we get down to a level in China, where we can look at the people who are looking to purchase sand to turn to concrete to build buildings. So we can actually go quite deep. And, and look, we've done some work with some, some of the, the large institutions in Singapore where they have bonds, Chinese bonds, and we're looking at really, you know, will is this bond safe, right? Will this bond go to completion or, or will they default? And we can actually look at that bond and say, basically, let's say it's a, a bond for, you know, concrete, right? We can look at the behavioral intent for people to be using concrete uh, in, in industry. So it is relatively straightforward for us to do. Uh, and we're, we're going to organize ourselves to do in the future because we think this this level of asymmetric information is actually very interesting to to people. And we are we are going to, and we've spent a lot of time thinking about it, working on it because it's actually very very complex to run because we've got to go back in data two to three years, and then we've got to run it every day for two to three years because actually all the data is still available from five years ago, and we have to run it to look at the rate of change of that index over time to see how that behavior is changing and then how do we relate that to, to the stock and then how does that relate it to the fund's mandate? 
And this is interesting. And for our listeners, because uh, a number of them are in the in the community, <clears throat> what, you, what you're actually saying is that <clears throat> if I was a fund manager, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I would have a set of make, metrics where I would be calculating the valuation of the company using a bunch of financial data. So I might conclude that the company is cheap. Yes. And and in the industry, there's <clears throat> excuse me, there's a term where they refer to it as a as a value trap, where the company's cheap, but at the end of the day, nobody cares. So it doesn't matter what you do; nobody's going to buy it. Really, then, what you're saying is based on on your indices. You, you're in in a way able to attach it. Like I, I love the analogy you said of Peugeot. It doesn't matter how cheap that stock gets. Or it doesn't matter how cheap the cars are. Nobody in Singapore is going to buy it. Nobody's going to buy it. Absolutely. So you're right. Value stock. So it's it's. And actually, there's two there's two interesting component parts. So the part that we don't do is we don't value stocks. So you know the earnings can be great and the stock can go down. The earnings can be great, the stock can go up. It's basically what do the market participants think about? What we do is we will give you a rate of change of that behavioral intent to see how well the products are about to be sold. Because at the end of the day, it's the six weeks prior to you doing your announcement, whereby that is the period you don't know what the sales are, because you know the sales for the previous quarter. And basically, we can say, we think the sales of this quarter are looking like this. Based on these indices, you, Mr. Fund Manager, go and do your evaluation and decide whether there's enough market participants that will actually look at the stock and buy it based on good results or even bad results, right? And you might want to short it. So it, it really depends on what you want to do. But fundamentally, we'll give you a set of indices that allow you to make decisions based on behavioral intent to buy the products in the market at a country level or a global level. And again... And again, from a from a fund manager perspective, and I think what you're saying is important. You're you're not saying to them, "Look, we've run some kind of proprietary valuation analysis." However, you you are in a position, and again, if we focus just from a long only bias, let alone short, you are in a position to say, "Look, the the there's enough momentum here where top line revenue is is going to grow." And it's up to the fund manager to say, "Look, what do I think that impact will be on on the stock price, irrespective." If that stock is cheap or expensive, Absolutely. based on what's there. Absolutely. How would just just one last question? How would you again? I know that you're you're not there yet, but if if you, what would be, and you may not be able to answer this, what would be the benchmark for the company? Would it would it be a function of you saying historically, this company has a, and again, I'll just make make this up, an intention, yeah. you know, median of a hundred, and now it's at eighty. How how would you envision? assessing what that looks like on a relative basis for, for the security. So we'd run, we, we would run the data back two years, and we would do it monthly or weekly, and we'd see that indices. Let's say the indices is zero to 100. Let's say 50 is an average, nobody cares. Let's say anything over 70, very high behavioral intent to buy the product. Let's say for the past 40 weeks, the behavioral intent has been 45, therefore no one cares about it. In the last couple of weeks, the behavioral intent has gone to 70, which means people are buying the product. That is, uh, that's a long opportunity if the stock is at, let's say, fair value. So, and interesting, and I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say it'd be the rate of change of that behavioral intent metrics over time. Is it going up? Or is it going down? If it's staying still, forget about it. But if it's going up or it's going down, if it's going up, it's definitely a long opportunity. And you know it's interesting. I think I think to that the one of the interesting points about your your two year look is it also the continuity of a CEO and the management team. So the ability for you to say that that this data we at least have a basis for consistent uh, consistent management. You know it'll be interesting offline as we talk about this more. Um, and regrettably we don't have time today. 
But I think even with what's going on with Apple, given their big, big pivot to trying to message to the market that services is more the P&L now that they're looking towards, not the iPhone and, and the changes that they have made, I think your your data analysis would be huge for the fun community to look at to say, hey, is there any merit to Actually, this? what we did for fun, uh, and I can say that because no one employed us, we can do it. So actually, we looked at the behavioral intent of people to actually acquire different types of iPhones, and it has declined significantly over the past couple of years. And, and when the iPhone 6, when the iPhone 7 was launched, the behavioral intent to buy the iPhone 7 was really quite low uh, in terms of expansion in different markets. So it's places like China we can actually see how that behavioral intent wanes over time. You know, the iPhone 6, the iPhone 7, to the iPhone 8, to the iPhone X, and then you can see how Huawei's coming up and behavioral intent changing. So in in this type of business where, where, the, where it's a consumer B2C business and it's a, a product like this, it is actually very easy to see what's happening. What is hard to judge, and this is what we, do, what we don't do, we're not very good at, nor do we want to be because we're scientists, is actually then make a judgment call on, on whether to buy the stock. That's what you guys do <laughs> very well. <laughs> and, and, and regrettably, we have the hairlines to show for it. <laughs> so, well, Ian, this has been fantastic. And, and again, as always, when, when you and I talk, I'm always wondering, you know, like we should probably have blocked out a few more hours. So forgive me. We, we will definitely revisit this and come back. I think we've given our listeners a few topics that um, we'll, we'll definitely be able to follow up on. Also for our listeners, Ian is on our community group, so be sure to subscribe. The link is on our website. And uh, Ian, again, a pleasure as well, always. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you, Frank. Great questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in, and we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care, Frank.